Keep your Bibles open to that particular portion of Scripture as that will be our text for our sermon tonight. And the title of tonight's sermon may be rather strange to you. If you might have saw that in the bulletin or, or saw the title in some way it, as we had sent that link out just to let you know what we were talking about tonight. It might seem rather strange to you because if you've heard me preach for a number of years, you know that I have had one constant theme, and that is that we don't need to be a selfish people, but yet we ought to be a selfless people, right? That we need to be taking the focus off of ourselves and put it on others, put it on God. But tonight the message is that in the end, it is about me. It's about me. So what am I talking about? Well, if you'll just stay with me for just a little while tonight, I hope to explain to you what I'm talking about here in Philippians chapter 1. Because we want to see just what the Apostle Paul had in mind that gives us this title. In the end, it's about me. I will agree that the title stands in stark contrast to what we have heard so many times in sermons because selflessness is the key to getting along with other people. It's important to have selflessness in the home in order to get along with family members. The same is true whether it's in the church or in the school or in the workplace as well. To get rid of self, that actually is a marvelous teaching of Jesus because in Philippians 2 and verse 5, when we read about the attitude of the mind of Christ, we go on to read on how he emptied himself. We see the humility of Christ. We see his sacrifice. We see his selflessness as abundantly clear in that passage. And this really just reflects the life of our Lord. But Jesus said, if you will recall, anybody that comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is certainly a passage that speaks of selflessness. And then in the same context, he goes on to say, what does it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, Mark 8, 34, and following. Well, in that particular passage, I have learned something. That while I called upon to get rid of self, to deny self, I do have a prized possession, and so do you. A prized possession is that is mine that only belongs to me, it is yours and it only belongs to you. And I'm talking about your soul. Your soul. You have one as well. God grants to each one of us. And that is something that belongs to each individual a soul. And so when you study your Bible and you come to this conclusion that you have the right to be selfish about your soul. Isn't that important? Have you ever thought about that? That it's that it's right to be selfish about your own soul, the only possession that we have of which we can be selfish 
is the soul. Maybe we can be selfish with family members. Obviously, uh, a man should be very jealous over his wife. That is, that he should prize her. She is his. But just think about it with most of what God has given us today and what he's given us throughout history. He says, freely share, be selfless, but you can be selfish with regard to your soul. And that is, you want to make sure, I want to make sure that whatever we do, our souls are saved. And so tonight, I want us to consider this title that in the end, that is, come judgment day, that means when the final time has stopped, it's about me. Take everything away that you have. Take everything away that money cannot buy or death cannot take away. That's what really is yours. And all you have left really is your soul, right? I want to do what I can while living in this life to make sure that my soul is saved. In the end, it's about you and it's about me when it's about our eternal possession, our soul. And I'd like for you to notice with me in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul alludes to this very idea. In verse 18 of Philippians 1, he's talking about the preaching of the gospel. Some would preach from pure motives. Others would preach from impure motives. Notice what he says. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Did you notice this in verse 19? This shall turn to my salvation. Paul's interested in deliverance. It Deliverance from what, though? That's, that's what that word salvation means. He's interested in being delivered from something there in verse 19. Oh, maybe it's a physical deliverance because, after all, he's, he's suffering in prison. He, he writes this letter from prison. Think about this. He's in a prison, perhaps all by himself, mistreated to some extent, abused to some extent, maybe very hungry, maybe very tired, very, very weary. Even though he's tired and weary, he, he cannot really sleep anyway. And there are physical dangers in the life of the Apostle Paul at that, at that time that this is being written. And no doubt, no doubt he has an urgent desire to be able to get out of prison. But for one thing, he wants to get out of prison so he can continue his ministry. Look at verse 25, 23. He says, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. 
Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul has confidence in others to believe that he's going to be delivered from this prison and to be able to escape that physical limitations that he is presently having to endure while in prison. But it also could mean a deliverance from emotional trauma. If I was in prison, I would be undergoing a a very emotional trauma, wouldn't you? I'm sure you would. There would be a period of great distress, depression, and in prison, he realizes that there are some on the outside that are are uh, sliding his good name, right? On the inside, he's having to suffer the mistreatment, and that could lead to a lot of emotional trauma. Just to think of what's happening on the outside, just to think of what's happening on the inside, he has no place to go, does he? to get away from that emotional trauma. But he's been thinking this thing though, or been thinking this thing through, because in chapter four, Paul has learned to be content even in this prison cell. In chapter four, verse 11, he says, not that I speak in respect of want, I've learned in whatsoever state that I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased And I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now listen to verse 14. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. In other words, there were some brethren out there praying for him. They were praying for him. They were thinking about him and they helped Paul deal with the emotional trauma of being inside this prison on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also could be talking about a spiritual deliverance here as well because he says in verse 19 of Philippians 1, he says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Maybe he's talking about that which is spiritual in nature. Because Paul knew that everything that's happening to him is working out for some good. It's working out for good. In fact, it will turn out to be good for his soul and even the souls of others. Everything that's happening to him right now, and think about it, verse 19 comes before verse 21, where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he's looking for deliverance, physical, maybe emotional, spiritual for sure. And he says, this will turn out to my salvation. Paul, therefore, is interested in the salvation of other people as well. He's also interested in, in, in their souls and their soul salvation. And I, that's all right. It's all right to be selfish with your soul because he's concerned about his specifically. But think about this for a moment. 
If ever there was a selfless individual, it was the Apostle Paul. No bigger turnaround than the turnaround life of the Apostle Paul, the one who goes from being the great persecutor of the church to the greatest preacher that we have ever known, save Jesus the Christ. And oftentimes, some of the greatest stalwarts of the faith were once among the greatest opponents. But Paul had learned that his motto should be, it's not about me. But indeed, if his motto was, it's not about me, in the end, it would be about him. Because it will turn out for his what? His salvation, verse 19. Three quick points tonight I want to present to you as we think about this idea and phrase. That in the end, it's about me. And then we will bring it back home again. In the end, it is about me. It's not about me. First of all, because it's about others. Right? Paul wanted to help other people. Notice his language again in the opening verses of Philippians 1 and verse 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. When was the last time that you have used that passage and spoke those words to somebody else? Or maybe you were sending a Facebook greeting or maybe a note in the mail and, and just inscribed that passage. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6. If someone is not familiar with that passage, you know what that person is going to do. They're going to see that you had wrote that, Philippians 1, 3 through 6, and they're going, to go, they're going to open up their Bibles and they're going to go and read that. And there's going to be this overwhelming calmness that will come about them that will say, He's thinking about me. They're thinking about me. They will immediately, and oh, the encouragement that it will give to them. Every time you think of me, you give thanks to God for me. Paul was saying this about the Philippian brethren, and he goes on to say in verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Don't you get the idea that Paul was somebody who loved people? Especially his own brethren? Go down to verse 7. He says, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you where? In my heart. It is, is your religion a religion of the heart? If not, it should be. He says, I have you in my heart. I am emotional about you. I have shed tears over you. That's how much you mean to me. Verse 7. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Oh, he's speaking about the same affliction or affection, affection that Christ has for you. He says that's the same affection that I have for you as well. And so here is a man who had been radically transformed by the power of the gospel, that is, where I didn't care about people before, but now I do care about people, 
I've taken the focus off myself and I put it on other people. Have you ever thought about when Paul lists his pedigree in Philippians chapter 3, that it really is just a focus on himself? Look at verses, look at chapter 3, verse 4 of Philippians. He says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he had whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Why is that, Paul? I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I mean, look at all he did. But evidently, that only impressed himself. It didn't impress God. It reminds me of the man that we find in Luke 18, 9 through 14, who was there in the temple, and he was talking about himself. He was supposed to be praying to God, but really he was speaking to himself. The Pharisee said, look how good I am. I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as is publican. I fast twice in the month, in the week. I gave tithes of all that I possess. And that publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I now ask you this question. Who would bring the most converts to Christ? That selfish Pharisee? Or that selfless sinner, that publican. Oh, we can look good in our self-righteous robes, right? But if someone is going to convert others to Christ, he's got to get to know the people. He's got to get down to their level and get to know them. He's got to have a concern for people to take an interest in them and not be worrying about himself. Right? And so it is that Paul would convert many to Christ once he left that pedigree behind. Paul took a great interest in people. Others meant something to him. And all we have to do is to take an interest in somebody else and show that person there is a better way. Making sure that that person understands that we are not much more different from them, but we found a remedy to the problem of sin. That's the biggest difference. That's the biggest difference. And so it is Paul had been just like everybody else. In fact, he was even a little worse. He found the salvation and remedy or remedy to his problem. Because he says, if I can change me and my salvation, guess what? It can change you. That's right. So Paul said that he had a great interest in people. And that was just demonstrated by the language that he uses. The Roman philosopher Stoic or Seneca said, wherever there's a human being, there is an opportunity for kindness. And that's right. When there is a human being, there is an opportunity to express love. And Paul said that that was his prayer for the Philippians in Philippians 1 and verse 9, when he says, in this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That was his prayer for them. And so genuine love is more than just a feeling. It involves action, doesn't it? 
Let them see in both deed and truth, 1 John 3.18. You know, when you look at the two most prominent characters in the New Testament, uh, you have Paul the, the Apostle and the Lord Jesus Christ, you notice the emphasis was on serving other people, don't you? It's interesting in Mark 10 and verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. In fact, Paul even stated in Philippians 2, 17, notice he says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. You know, Paul says, it's not about me. It's about others. God is love, and his nature is he's a giver. He gives, he helps, he cares, he sacrifices, and therefore I ask those of us who are followers to the Lord Jesus Christ to think about how we can make a positive difference this week in the lives of other people just by giving and helping and caring and sacrificing. And sacrificing. What will we find out? We will find this out. That in the end that will turn out for our salvation. Right? It will turn out for our salvation. In the end it will turn out for our salvation. Just read Matthew 25 in the great judgment scene. Just to see who's saved. Those who served others but let's go to number two and it's not about me but others and it's not about me it's about the gospel look at verse 12 of Philippians 1 look at verse 12 Paul says but I would ye should understand brethren that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel what is this word gospel mean the gospel is the good news isn't it the good news of human redemption that is found in only christ jesus our lord it is how sinful man becomes free from sin it is about the unrighteous are declared righteous through the very blood of jesus christ the gospel is not bad news it is good news and the gospel transcends time and culture. That's why it's so very important that we are able to make a distinction in every generation of what is scriptural and what is culture. I know that's tough. It's tough, but it needs to be done. Because the gospel itself will transcend culture. In other words, it will work anywhere and everywhere. Anywhere and everywhere. The gospel of Jesus Christ will work anywhere at any time, and it always will. Notice the emphasis on the gospel. Look at verse 5. He says, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Look at verse 7. He says that in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel... Verse 12, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 17, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Look at verse 27. He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. 
He talked about striving together for the faith of the gospel in that same verse. Over and over and over again, Paul emphasizes the very good news of the gospel. And he was willing to do what? To suffer for the gospel's sake. Now, what did that mean? Well, because he was willing to suffer for the gospel's sake, it made some people at least think about the gospel. Look at verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. People knew. People know why I am in prison, Paul is saying. They know it's not political, but that it's for something else. So just through his suffering, people began to start thinking about the gospel. And some of those people in the palace and Caesar's household evidently had obeyed the gospel because of it. Because later on in chapter 4 and verse 22, we would read that there were saints in Caesar's household among those who worked for him. But number two, it also made some courageous about the gospel. Look at verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Isn't that amazing? You see, here was Paul in prison. He's now relying on the, the people outside the prison to carry the gospel. And they'll do it for what reason? They have seen him suffer. They have seen him in prison. They, they see his boldness under fire. And now they're willing to stand. And then it has made some preach the gospel where they had not preached it before. Because verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. And some also of goodwill. No doubt because the apostle Paul needed this assistance. But in verse 17, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. You see, Paul loved the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was willing to suffer for the gospel for the gospel's sake. Then look with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 1, where he makes clear the superiority of the gospel of Christ over the Jewish religion and the wisdom of the Greeks. He says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that, fer that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Verse 21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And then in verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified. Unto a Jew's a stumbling block and unto the Greek's foolishness. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, and Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 23, he would talk about what he did. And he did it for the gospel's sake. The suffering that he endured was for the gospel's sake. Now here's the point. You will find that when we concentrate on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that turns out to work for our salvation, right? It turns to work out for our salvation. It's not about me, but guess what? In the end, it's about me. It's about me. 
Because just like when I serve others, that pays. And so is my commitment to the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Because you might remember in Mark 8 and verse 35, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. Oh, it's not about me, but about others. It's not about me, but about the gospel. And then... It's not about me, but it's about Christ, right? Totally consumed was Paul with Christ. And so in verse 18, he says, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in, in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. You remember back in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17, where Paul says that he preached Christ and him what? Crucified. The very theme of his preaching was Christ. Now, now listen very carefully. His theme was not repentance and baptism. His theme was not the church. His theme was not godly living. It was not heaven and hell. Those were preached because they were what? Because they were components of the overall theme. You see, the theme was Christ. And you cannot preach Christ without preaching about the church. You can't preach Christ without preaching about heaven and hell. You can't preach Christ without preaching about godly living. You can't preach Christ without preaching about Christ. Because the whole overall theme is Christ. And you remember that Paul would likewise state in 1 Corinthians 1 that he came not to baptize but to preach the gospel. That was not to minimize the very fact, the importance of baptism. For Jesus even said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 15 and 16. And Paul himself preached about baptism for the remission of sins. Romans 6, 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. But he says, Christ is your theme. Tell me the story of Jesus right on my heart, every word. That's right. We preach Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 1, 17. We preach Christ, well, Christ is preached, Philippians 1, 18. And even if there were some who opposed him because their motives were, were impure, that was okay with Paul as long as Christ was preached. And what, he, what did he say that will do? Verse 19, he says that this shall turn to my salvation. Why? Because for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. You see that? Verse 21. That's what I mean tonight when I use the title that in the end, it's about me. Because of my prized possession, my soul. When it comes to that point, that's the time that I need to be selfish. Because I will be standing there on judgment day alone. For judgment. But yet I will be standing there with other people. 
But when it comes to my soul's salvation, in the end, it's about me. It's not about me and it's about others. It will still work out my salvation. It's not about me but the gospel. And it will turn out for my salvation. It's not about me but about Christ. It still works toward my what? My salvation. And so in the end, then it's about me. Because in the end, it's about the salvation of my prized possession, my soul. The same is very true for you even tonight. As we even extend heaven's invitation for the one who's never named the name of Christ.